Hi everyone, this is Emily Henry. And I'm Ann Harris. Welcome to One Oregon, a podcast featuring stories from real people across our state, sharing about their experiences and lives. We hope that hearing their stories will help to break down barriers and smash preconceptions that we may have in our minds about what it means to be an Oregonian. It's our intention this podcast will have a positive ripple effect that will bring us all together as one Oregon. Today we are joined by Zachary Stocks, Executive Director of Oregon Black Pioneers, Oregon's only historical society dedicated to preserving and presenting the experiences of African Americans statewide. Zachary started as Executive Director in 2020 and is the first Executive Director in the history of the organization. Zachary joined us for this interview from his home in Astoria, Oregon. And we'll start where we always do by hearing how Zachary's Oregon story began. I'm from Virginia originally, and the first time I ever visited Oregon was in 2012 when I was moving from Virginia to Seattle to go to grad school. And my partner and I drove across the country. So we reached Oregon from Idaho along I-84. And I remember how surprised I was to see all the desert landscape because the only image in my mind I had of Oregon was of evergreen trees and thick forests. Um, So that was pretty different. And I remember distinctly during the drive that we were low on gas at one point and I saw this big lake appear on my right. And I told my partner, I said, hey, you know, we better get some gas pretty soon. I'm going to stop at the next exit once we pass this lake. So we're driving and then we're driving and we're driving and we're driving. And I'm like, wow, this lake is still going. This is huge. I've been driving for like eight minutes and there still haven't been any exits. And I'm starting to think we're going to run out of gas. And then after like 15 minutes, I'm looking around and thinking, this is the biggest lake I've ever seen. This must be a historic lake. It's probably the biggest lake in the Northwest. What is it called? And so we look at the map and I realized it was the Columbia River. So that just goes to show you uh, my knowledge of Oregon. We asked Zachary to share some of the stories of the Black Oregonians who have called Oregon home over the past 400 years. We start with the story of Black migration to the area through the Oregon Trail. So Oregon's Black history actually begins in rural communities, not in our cities. Uh, Portland didn't really have an African-American community, so to speak of. Uh, until after the arrival of the first transcontinental railroad in 1884. But people of African descent were arriving pretty steadily in Oregon since even before its territorial days. So Black migration to Oregon in the 19th century really begins with the Oregon Trail. And overwhelmingly, the Black pioneers who crossed the continent were doing so in the service of white families. Free and enslaved Blacks were traveling alongside white immigrants in the wagon trains from Missouri heading toward Oregon City in the Willamette Valley. On the trail, Black women typically acted as cooks and as midwives, nurses. They took care of the children and the elderly, while Black men uh, usually drove the wagons or tended to the livestock. There were very few Black individuals or families who came to Oregon on their own free will um, because the costs of the trip were really high, and Oregon's changing racial exclusion laws made it pretty unclear if Blacks would be able to permanently settle in Oregon. So you can imagine coming here and then realizing that you can't stay. Uh, So the Blacks who did make the trip ended up scattered around the Willamette Valley. There was really no singular Black community to speak of. Um, But that said, the Black travelers remained in touch with other Black migrants on their wagon trains. Other forces which brought Blacks to rural parts of Oregon were related to labor. Uh, Oregon had a gold rush in the 1860s, and in Jackson County, places like Jacksonville uh, emerged as a boomtown. There were 
a lot of black residents of Jacksonville, along with Hawaiian and Chinese laborers too. Um, in the 1890s, black coal miners started working in Coos County. Um, they were in, many of them came from Virginia or West Virginia. And in the 1910s, we see places like Maxville and Wallawa County where black loggers were brought in from the South to work in the timber industry. In pretty much all of these cases, those residents didn't remain in Oregon when those industries declined. And very often uh, the black laborers were the first ones uh, to be fired. I really hadn't thought about the fact that there were black folks on the Oregon Trail, on the wagon trains, serving in those capacities. It's never in any of the pictures or textbooks that I recall seeing. So just uh, just 3% of the overlanders who crossed the continent were black. So it's already an extreme minority. And not all of those individuals went to Oregon. Most went to California. And so it was really a tiny number, comparatively speaking, of Black individuals who crossed on the Oregon Trail and ended up in the Willamette Valley. Uh, We never hear about them, even though uh, they ended up in all the same places that became the first permanent settlements of the future state of Oregon. Despite their small numbers, there are still stories coming out about Black Oregonians throughout Oregon's history. Oregon Black Pioneers regularly receives new information that helps us understand more about the experiences of Black individuals who've lived all over the state. A couple of weeks ago, I came across a week-long series of stories from 1903 about a Black farmhand named Tom Johnson who ran off from uh, the LaGrande area with a married white woman, the wife of J.J. Murchison. Uh, Johnson was working for him and Johnson and Murchison's wife developed feelings for one another. And one day she came up with an alibi and met Johnson at the train station with her bags and her baby girl. And the three of them took the train to Portland. And when JJ Murchison found out what happened, he and the Union County Sheriff demanded Johnson's arrest and extradition. Um, And there was discussions in the paper that suggested that he would be lynched um, if Johnson were brought back to Union County. And so he was arrested in Portland, but he hadn't committed any crimes. So Portland police let him go. um, And J.J. Murchison ended up in Portland himself trying to find his wife and daughter um, and potentially to find uh, Johnson and bring him back to Union County. Um, But he never found any of them. And his wife left a letter saying that she would never come back. And after that, it's reported that he gave up the search. But this is one story that played out as headline news for over a week in both the Oregon Daily Journal and the LeGrand Observer. And Tom Johnson was referred to by the N-word and all sorts of awful language. So this really demonstrates how the white press considered Johnson the guilty person in this whole affair and how a tryst between you know, an interracial couple would be uh, the top news in the state for a while. So these are the kinds of stories that we try to dig up whenever we get a chance. That's so interesting. Do you know where they ended up? The trail runs cold. We're not sure. Yeah. I've been learning that Black women played a pivotal role in Oregon history. In particular, I've been learning a bit about Hattie Redmond. I know she was a suffragist who spent much of her life in Oregon. OSU recognized Hattie's impact on the state by recently naming the Hattie Redmond Women and Gender Center on campus. We asked Zachary to tell more about her. Hattie Redmond was born in 1862 in St. Louis, 
And she came to Oregon as a child uh, when her family took a job as the caretakers of a homestead in Hood River. Um, but they moved to Portland just, I think, just about a year later uh, when the land was sold. So Hattie's life is not well documented before the 1910s, but we do know that in 1893 she was married. And in 1910, she got a job as a janitor at the Oregon U.S. District Court building. But uh, while Hattie was working uh, as a janitor, she was also working hard outside of work to organize for women's suffrage. She had a leadership role in the Colored YWCA and other activist organizations. We believe that maybe that was uh, inspired by work her father did, uh, who also was quite involved um, in social activism. Hattie was the first officer of the Oregon Colored Women's Council, and in 1912, she formed a new organization, the Oregon Colored Women's Equal Suffrage Association, and she became its first president. And in that role, she toured Portland, giving lectures on women's suffrage and urging Black men to vote in support of the passage of an Equal Suffrage Amendment Proclamation for the state of Oregon. And so that measure was put on the ballot that same year, and it passed. And in 1913, Hattie was able to cast a vote uh, for the first time. So after that, she continued working as a janitor uh, for many more years, um, till 1939. And she died in 1952. And her story was pretty obscure until recently, but now she's finally getting the recognition she deserves as one of Oregon's women suffrage champions on the same level as Ava Emery Dye or Abigail Scott Dunaway. My favorite story from Oregon's Black history is the story of Letitia Carson, who was one of the first Black women in Oregon to own her own land. And Letitia was born into slavery in Kentucky um, around 1815. And in 1844, she came to Oregon with Irish immigrant David Carson. Their relationship is not entirely clear uh, because members of David's family were slave owners. But the two of them appear to be living as a couple when they get to Oregon, uh, their daughter, Martha Jane, was born on the Oregon Trail, and they had a son together in Oregon in 1849. And when David filed his original 1845 land claim in Benton County, uh, it was for 640 acres, which is the amount uh, permitted for married couples. Uh, but since Oregon didn't recognize a marriage between Letitia and David, uh, he was only able to claim up to 320 acres as a single white man. So... David died without a will in 1852, and a neighbor named Greenberry Smith was declared the executor of the Carson estate. And Smith sold Carson's land and livestock, and when he did, uh, Letitia believed that she and her children were entitled to the property as David's survivors, but the executor disputed her claim by emphasizing that she could not be legally married to David, and thus she was not entitled to act as his beneficiary. And she ended up even having to pay him to retrieve some of her furniture, cookware, things like that. But then Letitia Carson did something really extraordinary. She sued Smith for damages by claiming that if she were not his wife, then she must have been David Carson's employee uh, and that she was therefore due back payment for her seven years of hard work uh, in, in his home uh, in Oregon. And so the court actually agreed. And in two separate legal suits in 1855, uh, Letitia won over $2,000 in compensation. And she moved to Douglas County after that. And in 1869, she successfully filed a 160 acre land claim of her own under the Homestead Act. 
And now we move into more recent Oregon history. The Pacific Northwest may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the civil rights movement in this country, but Oregon has long been a home of the fight for equal rights, including here at Oregon State University. Oregon's participation in the African-American civil rights movement wasn't as high profile as actions in other states, but you could argue that it actually has lasted longer. First, I want to clarify that Black Oregonians have been fighting for justice and equal rights uh, as long as we've lived here. Um, But in the 1960s, we start to see Oregon's Black residents joining in on national actions to protest discrimination and violence. Student activism has been very big here. Uh, There were protests by students at University of Oregon, Oregon State University, other schools, even Southern Oregon University had movements where students got together to talk about civil rights. And so throughout the 60s and 70s, we see university students joining in national Black student organizing efforts with walkouts to demand change, pushing for new hiring, greater admission of Black students, courses which discuss African and African-American history, um, and the creation of Black student unions. In 1969, Oregon State University, the Black Student Union famously interrupted a lecture by Linus Pauling uh, to state their grievances and demands. That same year, 69, there were angry protests by a group of Portland teenagers um, in a city park, which led to a police crackdown that closed all of Albina for three days. The incident has since become known as Bleeding Albina. Uh, Residents, they were beaten and they began starting fires in response. And Governor Tom McCall uh, even mobilized the National Guard, but thankfully there were no serious injuries, no lasting injuries, let me say that. Police violence has been a constant theme for protests in Oregon since the 1960s though, especially in the wake of the police killing of Lloyd Stevenson in 1985, which has a lot of parallels to the local response to the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor in 2020. Another major theme in Oregon's black civil rights history has been housing. Generations of redlining and racially restrictive housing covenants led to nearly all of Black Portlanders being forced to live only in North and Northeast Portland from the 1940s onward. And as white residents left for the suburbs, these areas saw decline in investment and infrastructure, which made them pretty easy targets for urban renewal programs of the 1960s and 1970s. And so projects like the expansion of Interstate 5 or the creation of the Memorial Coliseum Uh, the expansion of Emanuel Hospital that never happened, those led to the demolition of hundreds of Black residences, which displaced thousands of members of Portland's historically Black community. And when these homes were replaced, they were replaced by unaffordable housing and retail, which catalyzed gentrification and further pressured the few low-income Black residents still remaining there. And all of this is still happening. It's all still going on. So I would argue that we're still in a period of civil rights movement uh, for Oregon's African-American community. This may be the first time you're hearing some or all of these stories. The state of Oregon has recognized a critical need for a more inclusive telling of Oregon's history. In 2013, a Senate bill was passed to transform Oregon studies in schools. Part of this bill requires that the Oregon Department of Education will create materials and trainings that present a more balanced representation of the contributions of African-American and Black Oregonians to the state's history. And what are the consequences when we leave out the history of a whole group of Oregonians? I think we lose the opportunity to fully understand our state's heritage. The fact that Black people have been witness to every important moment in state history 
that really matters. It says that this is a place that we have helped to create and that any remembrances or portrayals of Oregon's history without us are incomplete. You haven't learned Oregon's history if you haven't learned about Oregon's black history. You don't know about Oregon if you don't know about Oregon's legacy of white supremacy and anti-black racism. Black people have walked on Oregon's shores since literally the first day of non-native habitation here. There's no point in time when there have been white people in Oregon, but not black people, not a single day. But yet so few people know this, and that's because it was designed that way. Uh, our stories were never supposed to be preserved uh, because Oregon was never supposed to be a place for us to exist in. And when our presence in Oregon isn't acknowledged, it perpetuates the stereotype that Oregon is a place that's only for white people. And that in turn makes it easy to ignore our contemporary needs and the things that disenfranchise us. Uh, it makes it less hospitable for new arrivals of black people or for Oregon's existing black residents to stay here and raise their families here. And the only way to break this feedback loop is to tell our stories loudly and often. And that's what Oregon Black Pioneers tries to do. So my hope is that by illuminating some of the stories of people who've made important contributions to our state history, who maybe you've never heard of before because of systemic racism, that it will help to actually break down some of the ways that that racism continues and give us a better picture, a more accurate picture of what our state heritage really is. And hopefully we can use that as an opportunity to build new understanding and hopefully justice will come from that as well. And we end today with Zachary the same way we always do, by asking, what is something you love about your community? I love that Oregon's Black community itself is so diverse. We have professionals, we have people with university educations, we have people that don't, we have blue collar workers, we have people who've lived in Portland for generations or recent arrivals from East Africa, uh, living throughout the valley, uh, people from the Caribbean uh, moving here. We've got weirdos and artists and students and elders and young folks, every gender, every religion. Uh, we on our own are already a mosaic of the whole world. And in that 2.2% of Oregon that is black, you can find everything that's good and beautiful about the African diaspora. And I love that. So if anyone really likes the things that they've heard today and they want to support us and help us be able to continue to learn and share these stories, um, I hope that they will visit us at OregonBlackPioneers.org um, or on Facebook at Oregon Black Pioneers and consider making a gift. Uh, everything that we do is dependent on donations. So your support really does matter. You've been listening to One Oregon, Many Stories, One State. I'm Ann Harris. And I'm Emily Henry. And we want to thank Tim Mayer, our jazz piano player, jazz activist, who's offered his time and talent to create a uniquely Oregon musical environment for our podcast. And a huge thank you to Rick Henry, editor extraordinaire, for his patience and persistence in guiding us through this first season. We could not have done it without you. Thanks for listening. And please tell your friends about us. We hope you'll join us again for another episode of One Oregon.